Well, I don't know about you uh, this morning, but I, I could have just kept on singing. I, I could have kept on singing to our, to our great God. But here's a question for you. What is it that makes God great? I mean, you do understand that most everyone claims that their particular God is, is great. Allahu Akbar is the way the Muslims say it. It's called the takbir. And it is repeated four times at the beginning of the call to prayer uh, from those minarets that are located throughout Muslim cities. They say it at the beginning of those prayers five times a day. They say it before slaughtering an animal. They whisper it in the ear of a newborn baby. They say it is an expression of approval, surprise, or even anger. They may say it as a greeting. They may chant it at a soccer game. The terrorist may say it before he blows himself up in a crowded market. Technically, it means God is greater. As an expression, it means whatever we're doing, praying, scoring a goal, or waging jihad in the name of Allah, whatever we're doing, God is greater. But what is it that makes Allah great? One billion Muslims declaring it so many times a day. Just roll the clock back a couple thousand years. Paul is in Ephesus where he's been preaching the, the gospel of Jesus. And it has had an, it's had an impact on the city. So, so much so that people had stopped buying those little silver trinkets, shrines, which were in some way designed to declare the greatness of Artemis. You see, Artemis was the patron goddess of the city, the goddess of fertility. And, and, and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was her temple, which was located right out the, outside the city of Ephesus. It was an architectural wonder, some 425 feet long, 220 feet wide. It had 127 marble columns or, or pillars, remember that word, 62 feet high. I mean, this was an amazing piece of architecture. People came from all over the world to see, well, and of course to, well, to visit the religious prostitutes. Again, Paul's preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was so effective, it was having an economic impact. And so the silversmiths got together and it staged a riot. It, it ended up at the city's theater where all the people of the city rushed, and for two hours the people cried out, Megale, hey, uh, Artemis Ephesium, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the, of the Ephesians. Two hours they claimed their equivalent of Allahu Akbar. Of course, today that city and its corresponding temple lies in ruins. Apparently she wasn't that great. What is it that made her great? Was it the people declaring it so in a two-hour pep rally? What is it that makes the Christian God great? We said it as kids, didn't we? God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. So He's great because He gives me a cheeseburger? That was a bit juvenile. Uh, maybe now your, your mind goes to his great creative acts. I mean, who, uh, any God who can speak the universe and all that is in it into existence with the mere power of his spoken word must be great. And I would agree, but this is one of the reasons they declare Allah to be great, because of his creative acts. 
So in what context does the Scripture call God great? I, w- I would submit to you that if you do a little word study on that word great, a little word search in the Bible, and, and find the number of times that it refers to God, that it, well, it does include His creative acts, but it usually calls the acts great, like great lights, great creation, things like that. But, but it also includes, and this is very important, it includes His acts of deliverance for His people. Who, is, who else is great and an awesome God? Both Moses and, and David say because of His deliverance and protection of His people. And flip over the New Testament in Titus, which is another pastoral uh, epistle, Paul writes that we are, quote, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great, there's a word, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's interesting. Paul calls Jesus our great God, and he ties his greatness to his being the Savior. It's also interesting to note that the Scripture speaks of God's great act in saving us in passages like Ephesians chapter 2. But, but God, who, who, being rich in mercy because of His great love, there it is, great, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It's because of His great love for us that this great God has saved us. That's why He's great. So also, 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, there there it is, He's he's caused us to be born again, there's that deliverance again, uh, to to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I find it very interesting. I read through those Muslim prayers that they offer five times a day, and they proclaim Allah to be great because because of His mercy. Here's my question, why? What has he done to prove his mercy? So why? Why is the Christian God great? Because he created everything? Okay, I'll grant that. Because the Old Testament declares our God to be great and and, and awesome, greater than all the other so-called gods? Sure, I'll give you that. Because he gives us food? Okay, fine. But the New Testament speaks of his greatness in saving us. God is great because of His great saving work through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what our text says today in our continuing study of 1 Timothy. You can turn to chapter 3 there this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you're turning, let me remind you where we are in this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, who, by the way, was in Ephesus, where they had been proclaiming great is is Artemis. Is that right? Uh, the church had been established there some 10 years or so by now, but there was this problem. False teachers had come into the church, just as Paul had suggested that they would. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. They were not sparing the flock. So Paul, he left Timothy in Ephesus to set things in order. Remember from chapter 1, to, to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. You see, these Strange doctrines were contrary to the great gospel of our great Savior, and it seems this, this teaching was, uh, surprisingly enough, it was coming from the elders. And Paul even names a, a, a couple of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He had thrown them out, out of the church, handed them over to Satan, so they'd be taught not to blaspheme. You see, this is serious. Do not mess with our great Savior or His great gospel. Don't mess with that. 
And that left Timothy to set things in order. Paul, Paul intended to come back to Ephesus to, to help him. That's what 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15 say. I, I am writing these things to you. I, I'm hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which, which is the church. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a bit, but what were these things uh, regarding the church conduct that he had written up to this point? Well, in chapter 1, he made clear that these false teachers had turned aside from the truth. They had turned aside to myths and endless genealogies, which gave rise to speculation. And all of this was, it was inconsistent with the gospel. They, they turned from the truth to fruitless discussion, which was, he said, contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious, great gospel of Jesus Christ. This, this gospel, Paul said, by the way, is for everybody. It's even for the worst of sinners. So, so, so that's such good news. That's great news. Don't turn from it, Timothy. In fact, I want you to protect it. I want you to guard it. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, we found that this false teaching had adversely impacted the corporate worship of the gathered assembly uh, uh, of the church. So, so Paul gave some instructions re regarding that. I, I want, listen, I want you to pray for people, which means, well, all people, because our great God wants people everywhere to be saved. In fact, I want, I want men to pray. I want them to be holy when they do it. I want them to lift holy hands. And I want women to be holy too. I want them to dress appropriately. I don't want them to look like those women at, at Artemis' temple. Don't, don't look like prostitutes. And I want men to lead in the gathered assembly in, in teaching and in exercising authority. Well, all of that brought us then to chapter 3. Obviously, since I've had to remove some elders, Timothy, you, you need to replace them. And so here are some qualifications that you should look for uh, in these men who will serve as elders or serve as overseers. And while I'm at it, here are some qualifications for, for deacons as well. All of that brings us to our text this morning. I am writing these things, you see, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. He has an awful lot of really good things to say about the church. That ought to, that ought to say something to us. Timothy, I'm writing these things, what we've looked at so far, so that you would know at a minimum how the church should be well organized, how the church should be structured. It needs to deal with false teachers. It needs to preserve and protect the gospel. It needs to appoint um, qualified men to serve as elders and qualified people to serve as deacons. And, and Paul then uses these three very descriptive phrases to refer to the church, which I think highlights the great the great value of the church. Now, I know that we live in a world today that really kind of minimizes and makes the, the church kind of optional and kind of a mess. That's not the view of Scripture. Uh, look at those three phrases with me. He says, first Paul calls the church the household of God. Now, that word could be translated either house or household. And actually, the context of 1 Timothy 
uses it in both ways. Either translation works. Peter, for example, talks about us being living stones, being built into a temple, this physical structure in which God dwells. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul talks about the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet elsewhere, we are also called members of God's family. In other words, his household. You know, with him as father and us as sons and daughters, and by the way, brothers and sisters. Maybe that should cause us to think twice about what we say about family. Paul actually uses both pictures of both house, physical structure, and household family in Ephesians 2. He kind of mixes it. He says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household so there you are, God's family being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He switches it. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built, um, uh, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So I want you to catch that. Uh, we belong to God in a family way. We are actually members of, you understand, this great God who spoke the universe into existence, we are members of his family, and we uh, together are the house in which he lives. He has chosen to, to live in us. Here, here's the point. The church is none other than God's family. The church is none other than God's dwelling. Seems kind of important to me. Second, he calls the church, he calls us the church of the living God. The church of the living, that's the emphasis, the living God. We know the word church speaks of those who have been called out of this, the, the, called out of this present evil age into a relationship together, and, and to be an assembly together in which God is in our midst. And from here, Paul wants to make clear that we understand this called out assembly is the church of the living God. Cause a little... Sobriety, a little, a little seriousness. We don't serve a dead idol. We serve the one and true living God. And it is the church of the living God. It belongs to him. This is a big deal. He paid a high price to get it. Acts chapter 20 says he paid for it with his own blood. 30 says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Now, we, we remember that temple of Artemis, right, those 127 columns or, or, or pillars, well, that thing held, that, that, that held up this huge marble roof. It, it, it put this temple on display. I mean, it was a magnificent piece of architecture. People came from all over to see it. That's the idea here. We, too, are supposed to hold the truth high so that everybody can see it and marvel at it. That is really, really something, because it is. It's truth. What the church does, holds it up. Not only that, we are to support it. We are the support for the truth. The word there speaks of being a bulwark or a, a buttress. Well, that means we support it and we, and we defend it. We protect it. Don't mess with the truth because the, the church is going to deal with you if you do. Your translation may have a foundation. That, I just want to say, just a little aside here, that's not exactly right. The church is not the foundation of the truth. Rather, the truth is the foundation of the church. The, the church builds itself on the foundation of God's truth. And we hold it high, and we defend it. 
Church is God's house. Church is God's family. The church serves and is the possession of the very living God of the universe. The church holds out the truth and it defends it. You see, the church is an amazing, amazing thing. We ought to be very, very careful how we speak of the truth. So let me just go ahead and get something out. Everybody seems to think it's okay um, today. So let me just go ahead and put it on the table for us. Let me just go ahead and say, the church, as wonderful as it is, is not perfect. All right, I said it. We all agree. We've all known some very lousy churches. We've all known... We've all known some people hurt by the church. And maybe you've been hurt by the church. And, and for that, I want you to know that I am truly sorry. I'm not going to make any excuses. The church was not act, does not always act like the church. If it did, if the church was always acting rightly, we wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be wounded. But let me also say this. It's what we got. And the church is extremely important to God. It is his, purchased by the very blood of his own son. So despite her many imperfection, the church plays a prominent role in God's eternal plan. So listen very, careful, very carefully to me. Please, please do not quit the church because she is less than perfect. She always will be until Jesus comes back. This brings us to the heart of the text and what many suggest is the heart of the entire letter, indeed, maybe even the heart of the, of the Bible, the heart of Christianity. You see, this text is what makes the Christian God great. Read it with me. It's in 1 Timothy 3, 16. You know John 3, 16. You should know this one as well. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by or in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. I cannot think of a better passage to launch us into the Advent season. I can't think of a better passage to prepare us for communion this morning. Paul just said, the church is the pillar in support of the truth. To, to, to be a pillar means she holds the, that truth high. To be a support means that she guards the truth. She defends it. She protects it. Here's the question, what truth? Well, what truth are we talking about? He tells us. I want to make sure there's no confusion about this. He tells us in verse 16. By common confession. That is a really weak translation. It means this is most certainly, most absolutely true. It is undeniable. It is beyond all question. And as such, we can all profess it and confess it boldly. Great. There's our word. Great is the mystery of godliness. It's the same word that the Ephesians used when they were saying great is, is Artemis. And Paul says, not exactly. There is something else better someone else who is greater. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, we know the word mystery was something that was before unknown to us, but now has been made known to us. We know, as we've studied through the New Testament together, is the mystery is, is Jesus and His gospel. And this Christ and His gospel 
Well, it's supposed to make people godliness. It's supposed to make his followers godly. That's what Paul means by, by the mystery of godliness. You see, there was a problem in the Ephesian church. They weren't exactly being godly. But don't miss the verse. Paul here is actually talking about someone who is great. Great is the mystery. Here, here's the, here it is. Great is the mystery. Here it is. Who was revealed in the flesh. I want you to notice that the mystery is a who. You see, the word he isn't actually in the Greek. He starts with the word who. Great is the mystery who. Well, who is who? Well, the rest of the verse tells us. Don't miss the connection. Great is the mystery who is Jesus. In other words, he is saying very clearly, great is Jesus. You see, we say yeah too. Not Allahu Akbar. Not great is Artemis, which is probably ringing in Paul's memory. Right? He was there when they had that pep rally. No, 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 no. Great is Jesus. Why? That's the question. That's the question. Why is Jesus great? Why is this mystery? It was a who. Why is, why is Jesus great? Gives the answer. And please notice how the rest of the verse is kind of set off in a sort of poem or a, or a creed or a saying or perhaps a hymn, which is right. Most feel that this was actually an early hymn that Paul inserts. He actually quotes and puts it in the sacred text of Scripture. So, some suggest that that's why he begins with the word who. It's very likely he has lifted this hymn out. And the earlier lines of the hymn told us clearly who. He just quotes it, but the lines that follow tell us who he is. You see, what follows are six lines of clear, creedal hymnody. Now, I'm not going to go into all the Greek, but you need to understand that it actually jumps off the page in the original language. It is absolutely an amazing piece. Uh, it's why it appears as a rhythmic stanza in your Bibles. It is supposed to. In these six lines, we learn the truth about our great God, Jesus, and what makes Him great. And it is His saving work on our behalf. This is the truth that we are supposed to hold high. This is the truth that we are supposed to protect at all costs. This is the great mystery that has been revealed to us. This is Jesus who is great. Look at what he did. I'll compare him with any God you want to. Lots of discussion about how to organize this hymn. Is it one? I mean, really, it goes for pages. Is it one long stanza? Is it two stanzas of three lines each? Or is it three stanzas of two lines each? It, why does that matter? You see, depending on how you order it, how you break it down, affects the interpretation, but not greatly. You see, it's obvious that the hymn is talking about Jesus and His work. Those who see it as three couplets uh, or, or three two-line stanzas note an apparent contrast in each one of those couplets. Look at the screen. Between flesh and spirit, between angels and nations, and the world and, and glory. So they suggest that those three couplets point to the revelation of Christ, the proclamation of Christ, and the reception of Christ. I, I, I really like it. That's a great three-point um, sermon. But, let, but, but, but let's just, just make it a little bit easier. Uh, um, the, uh, let's just take it as two three-line stanzas. The first three lines talk about the... Jesus and His work, the next three lines talk about the church's proclamation of His work. So, the mystery is great. That's Jesus. Jesus is great. Why do we say that? 
He was revealed in the flesh. He was vindicated by or in the spirit, and he was seen by angels. Each of those lines talk about the work of Christ through the gospel. First, he was revealed in the flesh. This is obviously talking about his incarnation. Now, it's a big word. It's a big theological term. And I, I like to use this illustration every once in a while. I haven't used it in a while, so let me use it again. Here it goes. Um, when we think of chili con carne, what does that mean? It means chili with meat, right? If you know Spanish, it means chili with meat. That's what it means. That's what we're talking about here. Incarnation means Jesus with meat. It's Jesus with flesh. That's what we're talking about. You see, Jesus has always existed in the second person of the Trinity, but he was revealed by taking on human flesh. And of course, we know that this happened at, at the very first Christmas. It's a great Christmas sex when, when Jesus was born to Mary. These same words that talk about re being revealed in the flesh um, uh, appear throughout the New Testament. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, it says, For he, Jesus, was foreknown, or chosen perhaps, before the foundation of the world, and has appeared, that's the word, has, has been revealed, has been manifested in the last times for your sake. Hebrews chapter 9. He has been manifested, there's the word, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. A couple more. First John 3 says, you know that he appeared. There's the word. He was revealed. He was manifested in order to take away sins. And we stop right there and we notice that Jesus appeared in the flesh to take care of the problem of, well, to take care of the problem of sin. The question is, who's sin? John chapter 1 says that Jesus became flesh and he lived among us for a while. One translation has it or one paraphrase has it that he moved into the neighborhood. And of course, I can't leave out Philippians chapter 2 that Pat already quoted for us. Who, that is Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped and that regarded something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, that is, of the voluntary use of his divine attributes, and he took on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. He took on flesh. And at the incarnation, Jesus was revealed in the flesh as the perfect God man. He's the perfect one in frankly, the only one to represent God to man and man to God. Sorry, Muhammad doesn't cut it. He took on flesh and never sinned. But he dealt with our problem of sin by taking our sin in his own body on the cross. He was crucified, dead, and and buried, but he did not stay dead. You see, this brings us to the second line of the hymn. He was vindicated in or by the Spirit. You see, his entire ministry was approved, vindicated as authentically messianic by the Spirit. His entire ministry was proven to be accepted by God through the Spirit. Again, we, we, re we remember the virgin. Mary was overshadowed by the Spirit, and she became pregnant. When he was baptized, entering into his public ministry, we see God's approval by the Spirit of God descending on him in the form of a dove, vindicated. Hebrews 9 says that, this is very interesting, through the eternal Spirit, Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. Even at the crucifixion, the Spirit was involved. And perhaps most importantly, he was raised by the Spirit, demonstrating that his work had been accepted, he had been vindicated, he had been approved by God. Romans 1 says it this way. 
concerning his son who was born of a, a descendant of David according to the flesh. There's that flesh thing again. Who was declared though to be the son of God. There's the deity with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was vindicated, make no doubt about it, by the spirit of God. Third line. He was seen by angels. His entire ministry was attended by angels. Angels were present to announce to Mary His coming incarnation, and to Joseph, by the way. They were present to announce His, his birth to the shepherds. Angels were present to minister to Him after His temptation in the wilderness when He had entered His public ministry. They were present at the Garden of Gethsemane as He prepared for the cross. They were present at the resurrection to announce that He was alive to the women who came. They were present at His ascension to announce His return to heaven and to affirm his future second coming. The fact is, angels were all over the place. He was seen and approved by angels. As brings us to the second stanza, and with this I close. Having finished his work, the church is now to proclaim the hope of the gospel. You see, he was proclaimed among the nations. It started in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when the nations, remember, they came from all over, and they were present on that first day of the birth of the Christian church. He was proclaimed throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the then known world by the Apostle Paul. And you do understand that his message is currently being taken to all the nations of the world and then the end will come, Jesus said in Matthew 24. And, and, and as this gospel is proclaimed, people are actually believing it. You see, from the original 120 in the upper room to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost to 5,000 men, a few chapter, uh, men alone, a few chapters later in the book of Acts, to the Ethiopian eunuch, who have now gone beyond Jews, to Gentiles, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, to God-fearers in Acts chapter 10, to the ends of the then-known world, to the missionary journeys, uh, Paul and Barnabas and Silas and, and John Mark. And the gospel is right now being preached and believed. You do understand this all over the planet. Hallelujah. I shared with you a few weeks ago that we have a friend who is preaching in the Middle East, in a Middle Eastern city, in a, in a church in Baghdad. Give me a little update. There are now 82 who are ready to be baptized, 72 of whom are former Muslims who used to declare Allahu Akbar, who now understand that Jesus alone is great. You see, the church is being built just like Jesus promised. This is good news. Finally, he's taken up into glory. He's taken up into glory. This could refer again to his ascension where he was received back into heaven and received the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, John 17. It could speak of his being currently seated at the right hand of the Father, receiving the glory that is rightly due Him. It could speak of a time yet future when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. That, listen to me, that, my brothers and sisters, is the gospel. That is the message that we are to hold high and proclaim for all of, to see. That is the message we are to protect and defend at all costs. That is the message that we have gathered to believe and to celebrate and through, through this Advent season and through this time around the communion table. This is the truth that our God, Jesus, is great. That's what makes Him different. Let's pray. Father, we, we have gathered in this room. It's December. It's Christmas season. We've got Christmas trees and lights and, and, and 
stuff like that. But this text reminds us what it's all about. Great Christmas text to remind us that Jesus was revealed in the flesh. And through his life, it was vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. And praise God. He's been believed on in the world. He's been believed by us. He's taken up in glory where he's seated at your right hand. And we proclaim Jesus is great. Mystery is great. And you want us to remember. You don't want us to forget. So we um, take this first Sunday of each month to remember. Remember what made Jesus great. It's the deliverance of his people. And it cost a lot. It cost his very body broken. It cost his blood shed for us. To buy the church. Forgive us. Would you, would you please forgive us for thinking poorly of the church. Bride of Christ, the body of Christ, family of God, temple of the Holy Spirit. Would you help us to love her as we remember the high price that was paid. In Christ's name. Amen.